Okay, good evening. Thanks for joining um, tonight. Um, before we begin the class, just a few dedications on tonight's shear. The shear this week was dedicated by uh, Shimon Leantz, Stephen Leantz. This is in honor of for Rafur Shalema for his wife. Uh, she's going to have a surgery tomorrow. May Hashem protect her, and it should be in great, great success. And a very speedy recovery. Shandel Malka, Bas Chayahudel, a complete and total Rafua Shalema. Um, uh, it should, Hashem should uh, be, um, make this be mamish miraculous. Um, another dedication tonight was by Avram Plotkin. This is in, in honor of his mother's yard site, which is going to be. On Wednesday, the 11th of Tevis, Yen Tabas Rev Nochem. May your Neshama have a very great Aliyah, channel lots of brachas to you, and everything that you need and everything that you want, in the material and in the spiritual, Parnasa Barachava, and good health, Nachas from the children, and only good. Another dedication tonight was by the Nathanson family, and this is in honor of a whole bunch of things here. The Rafur Shalema for Rivka Bazelda and David Yisrael ben Freda. Frida Gisha, uh, both should have a complete and total refua. Um, a yard site of a grandmother, Zelda Bas Chana, Bechana Leib, Bas Chana Leib, all of Ashalem. May Rinishama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights, lots of brachas, and a whole bunch of birthdays. Chana Leib's birthday on the 11th. Um, her son, uh, their son, Shloim Baruch, on the 18th. Their son-in-law, Sadia Yitzchak, on the 25th of Tevis, and grandsons, Yesuf Yitzchak, and Abishmeir, and Chavzai in Tevis. Everybody decided to do it in Tevis. Very beautiful. Um, a lot of, everyone should have a really good bench to year, Shnaz Bracha with much mazel, prosperity, and good health, and nachas, and just a lot, a lot of energy, and a lot of light to do good things. Thank you so much for that dedication. Um, and uh, last but not least, the CD this week was dedicated by Monroe Sternlieb, Michal um, Rafal, Dr. Michal Rafal Sternlieb. Uh, this is in honor of his father's yard site, Menachem Mendel ben Yosef HaKoyen Olav HaShalem, whose yard site is tonight on the 10th of Tevis. May his neshama have a really, really, really wonderful, great aliyah, and may he channel only blessings to you a lot of mazel and only good things and much bracha in every, in every aspect. Thank you so much for all those who dedicated. Um, I want to announce a um, very important announcement um, to all those who listen to the shir, whether on podcast, whether on our website, whether on our CDs, uh, all those who attend my Yisrael, um, just an important heads up, we're having a special campaign um, coming up this Sunday, from Sunday to Monday, from Sunday twelve, uh, Sunday two o'clock in the afternoon, till Monday two o'clock in the afternoon, an exciting um, fundraiser for Mayon Yisrael. It's a twenty-four hour drive, uh, in which all donations to Mayon are going to be quadrupled. It's a great opportunity to help us out. Baruch Hashem, we've been giving, uh, flooding the community with so many classes, uh, nonstop inspiration. Um, that are on our website, all those who participate online, 
the hundreds of you that participate and, and listen to the classes. And the, the thing is that's so great that these classes are spread all over the world, but I don't know who's listening and I don't get to communicate with you. And here's a chance for everybody that listens to please uh, help us do more um, for, for the Jewish people. And uh, we need your help. So this is going to be a campaign um, on Sunday again from 2 o'clock till 2 o'clock. We only have 24 hours to raise um, a certain amount of money or else we don't get anything. So we're asking everyone on Sunday. Uh, you'll probably, if, if you're on our email list, you'll receive those emails. If you're on my WhatsApp or on my phone list, you'll receive it from there as well. Hopefully it'll reach you, will catch up with you on Facebook or other, multi, other social media. But if, it, if for whatever reason it doesn't come to you in some kind of a message, please go to our website on Sunday. It'll be on the front over there, the link to the, to the page in which this uh, campaign is happening called the Charity Campaign. Or you can go to the Charity website. That's spelled charity with a D, not with a T. You'll see Mayon Yisrael. And again, it's a 24-hour drive. You can help us out tremendously. We really need your help, and all that you will give to us will immediately turn back into more quality classes and programs for the community. Thank you in advance. Thank you very much. Okay, now that we've made all the important announcements, time to begin the class. This week is a very special week. It is the conclusion, concluding parsha of Sefer Bereshis, the book of Bereshis, Shabbos Chazak. And we read there's something very special at the end of the parsha, but also very strange and truly incomprehensible. The Torah talks about the passing of Yaakov, right? The chapter of the forefathers ends, and now we're going on to the story of the children. But the question is, did it really end? Is there a true end to anything Jewish and to anything holy? Or do the fathers really continue? So there is what it looks like, and then there is what it truly is. So it says by Yaakov, after he blesses his sons, he says his parting words in Pasuk, in Perek Memtes, chapter 49, verse Pasuk Lamed Gimel. It says like this, verse 33. Vayachal Yaakov letzavis es banav. And Yaakov concluded, concluded um, commanding his children, giving them instructions. Vayasef raglavas el And he gathered his feet to the bed. Vayigva, and he expired. Vayasef el amav, and he was gathered into his people. What seems like a chapter has ended. The chapter of the forefathers, of the patriarchs of the Jewish people. But Rashi points out something very interesting. It says, Vayigva, he, he, he expired, Vayasef Alamav, and he gathered into his people. But Rashi says, Umisa loinem rabbi, but it doesn't say that he died. It says he expired, he was gathered into his people. It doesn't say that he died. So our sages tell us, Yaakov avinu loimes, Yaakov didn't die. That's it. He never died. A blanket statement. Yaakov did not die. Um, obviously, this is going to become very problematic because right after this it says Yosef falls on his father's face and he cries. And then Yosef commands the doctors to embalm his father. And they, as the Egyptians, they were 
they were into making mummies, so they were embalming Yaakov, whatever they needed to do. And then they took him to, Israel, to, to the land of Canaan, to the Ma'ara Samachpel, and they buried him. So what does this mean? Yaakov didn't die. It's a strange thing that Rashi says. Yaakov didn't die. So um, how are we to understand this? Now simply we can say it means spiritually he didn't die. That his soul continues on to live. But that's not a novelty by Yaakov. That is by all, even our souls continue on forever. A soul doesn't die. A body dies, not a soul. But the sages are saying something about Yaakov. Yaakov didn't die. They say it about selected people. About Yaakov, about Moshe. They didn't die. So obviously something special about them, different than everyone else. And the sages go on and they say, Tzadikim, the righteous, Afpimisasam, even in their death, Kiruyim Chayim, they're called alive. So you can't say they're only called alive. It's like they're alive. Because then that's by all Tzadikim. If Yaakov is special, singled out, that means that there is something about Yaakov. No, he didn't die. So how, how do we make sense of this? Now, again, Rashi over here doesn't say that much. Yaakov, Rashi brings what the, the Talmud says, what the Gemara says, Yaakov didn't die. Uh, other commentators um, deal with this. Nachmanides, the Ramban, in the last, last piece in the parsha, in the last Nachmanides on Sefer Bereshis, he says, over here, he says, um, what do you mean he asked the question? He says, um, Yaakov himself says, I am going to die. So um, he says, so he gave two, so Ramban gives two things, first of all. He says, maybe Yaakov himself didn't know that this would happen to him. This is what happened, that he wouldn't die, but he thought he would die, or he didn't want to speak highly of himself that he won't die. So he's told him he's going to die. But then he asked another question what happens with the brothers? It says the brothers saw that their father died. So it clearly says that they... So he says, ah, to them he died. You hear that? To them he died. It means what was visible to them, for as much as they were concerned, Yaakov died. But the truth is, or they didn't know about this. That's what he says. Maybe they just didn't, they didn't know that he didn't die. They thought he died. Or he died for them, but not in reality. Something that needs some understanding. Rabbeinu Bahaya uh, explains this term. He, he, he wants to say that you can't say this means literally. Rabbeinu Bahaya says we can't say this means literally that Yaakov, that Yaakov didn't die in the literal sense because how can we say that? So he wants to explain that, uh, again, spiritually he didn't die. But then he asked that question. If spiritually he didn't die... How is he different? How is Yaakov different than all the other tzaddikim? All the other tzaddikim don't either die. In what sense is Yaakov different? So Rabbeinu Bachaya says that other tzaddikim, when their souls leave their body, the soul leaves the body completely, goes up to its source. But Yaakov, since he's such a super tzaddik, and his body became sanctified to such a degree, the soul hovers above the body. And from time to time, it can enter the body as well. So it's like, it's like hovering. It touches and it doesn't touch. So he's kind of alive. Sometimes he fully is alive. And that's the meaning. And he quotes and he gives an example of someone else who was like this. Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the author of the Mishnah, the Talmud says that every Friday night, 
he would come to his family and he would make Kiddush after he passed away. They knew Friday night he would come until a neighbor found out about it and she started making a whole thing and that's when it stopped. But Yaakov, but Rebbeinu HaKadosh would come to his family and make Kiddush. So he says that's the same thing because there are very, very, very holy tzaddikim whose souls can remain next to their body like just a couple of inches above their body and need to be, they can come in. And then he gives another, he says more Kabbalistically, the, the meaning that his body didn't die is that there's two bodies. There is the very earthy physical body and that body was clinically dead. He died. But there is a, another kind of body that's, a, that's, not, that's not soul. It's more like an encasement for the soul. It's kind of between the physical and the spiritual, kind of metaphysical. And that body is when we say didn't die. And that body kind of floats in the world. And when necessary, it can, it can, it can I think, vest itself in the physical body. And when necessary, and when necessary, it can vest itself in the physical body as well. Okay, this is what it says in Rabbeinu Bachaya. But the question is, does Rashi mean that? That he's, that it's some kind of a, a spiritual kind of a continuation? Or does Rashi mean literally that Yaakov is alive? So let's take a look at the source of this in the Talmud, in the Gemara. So the Gemara, this is a, a passage in the Talmud of Masechtas Tainas, Tractate Tainas, Dafhei, the Talmud relates a story like this, that um, Rav Nachman and Rabbi Yitzchak have a yasvi besudasa. Rav Nachman and Rabbi Yitzchak were sitting down to a meal. This is on Tainas, Davhei, you can look it up, Ahmed Beis. And so they're sitting by a meal, and Rav Nachman says to Rabbi Yitzchak, Lema mar milsa, the master should say something. Meaning, we shouldn't just sit here and munch and crunch food. We should be talking of something of... Torah. We know how important it is to speak by the table uh, words of Torah. So he, Reb Nachman says to Rabbi Yitzchak, say something. Amalei, so Rabbi Yitzchak says to him, Hacha Amar Rabbi Yochanan, this is what Rabbi Yochanan said, Ein masichin b'su'uda. By, you're not supposed to talk in the middle of a meal. So he says, my Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan taught me that we don't talk in the middle of a meal because there's a danger of choking. Shemayagdim kana leveshet. Maybe you're going to cause the windpipe to open up and, and it's going to uh, receive the food before the esophagus. Meaning, in other words, there are two pipes in a person's throat. One of them is the food pipe, the esophagus. The other one is the windpipe. And we're afraid that when you talk, see, the windpipe has a little cover on the top. It's like, you know, see those trucks that have an exhausting on the top and it keeps on flapping. So what happens is when you talk, being that you're exhaling air, it causes the flap to open. And then if it opens up, then the food can go down the wrong pipe. And then chas v'shalom, a person can choke. So therefore, it's a danger to talk in middle eating. Therefore, I will not answer you. That's what he tells him. Then, Basa said, after they finished the meal, Amalei said to him, by the way, you asked me to say something, so I'll tell you. Hacha Amar Rabbi Yochanan. This is what Rabbi Yochanan said. Again, quoting from his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan. Yaakov Avinu Loi Meis. Yaakov, our father, did not die. So this, 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 what we just said, this, this is the origins. And this is what he teaches him. Yaakov didn't die. So Rabbi Nachman says, hold it, hold it. Amalei said to him, this doesn't, how can you say that? 
v'chantu chantaya, v'kavru kavraya, is it in vain, is it for naught that they eulogized him? Is it for naught that they embalmed him? Is it for naught that they buried him? If he didn't die, so why did they eulogize him? Why did they embalm him? Why did they bury him? Amalai, so he says to him, okay, you have a good question. But Mikrani Dorish, I have a Pasuk. I have a source in the Torah from where we derive that Yaakov didn't die. From where? Shanamar, it says in a Pasuk, this is a Pasuk in, in Yermiyahu, Va'ata al-tira avdi Yaakov. God says, and now don't fear. My servant Yaakov, don't be afraid. Neum Hashem says God, Va'altechas Yisrael, and don't tremble Israel. Ki hinini because I will save you from a distance. That means even if you're scattered across the world and you're so far away, God says, I will save you. But he tells it to Yaakov, I will save you, my servant Yaakov. Don't be afraid. And your children from their land of captivity. So what we do over here is, so this is what it says in the apostle. I will save you and your children from a foreign land. That itself is not good enough to say that Yaakov didn't die, because maybe he will save him from a foreign land, means he will save him after he passed away. But the, the Talmud says, we do a comparison. It says, since it mentions two things in the Pasuk, you and your children, so we can do what's called a hekesh. One of the ways the Torah, we, we, we extrapolate in the Torah, is when two things are mentioned in the same Pasuk, one next to each other, we can equate one to the other, and derive certain things from one towards the other. So since it says, I will save you and your children, your children, it says, from the land of captivity, now you can't be, a, you're not a captive once you die, when the person leaves this world, they're not a captive anymore. Captive is only when a person is alive. That's when they're in captivity. So since it says, I will bring your children back from captivity, so it must be those that are alive, not going to be bringing, not going to be bringing the you know, dead people back to Israel. We're going to be bringing the living Dead as well, because we know there's going to be a Tres But when it says, I'm saving your children, it means your living children, your descendants that are alive. So I compare Yaakov to his descendants, just like his descendants are alive when, they will, when God will bring them back. So too, Yaakov is also alive. That's what he says. So I have a puzzle. Simply, what does he, what he, what does he seem to be saying? Don't confuse me with the facts. Don't tell me he died, they buried him. I don't care about that. I have a verse. And what the Torah says to me is truer than what the facts seem to say. Okay? That's a simple meaning. Okay? Now, let's try to just look, analyze this Gemara just with a couple of questions and see if we can gain a deeper understanding of what's going on. So by the way, Rashi says, when, when um, he says to him, I have a Pasuk that says that that, uh, that um, that Yaakov is alive. So Rashi says, or, or and also earlier, where it says Yaakov Avinu Loi Meis, when it says Yaakov didn't die, El Chayu, Bichdi, okay, hold on over here. Oh, Rashi says, Mikrani Dairish, when he answers him, I have a Pasuk, and Rashi says, Vaha Dechantu Chantaya, hear this, and this that they embalmed him, Svurim Meis, they thought that he died. Okay, that was their perception. The perception of the Egyptian doctors. Maybe even the perception of Yosef. 
maybe the perception of the brothers is they thought that he died, but he didn't really die. So obviously from Rashi it's clear that we're talking on a very physical level because Rashi is challenging this, that they embalmed him, and Rashi says, no, okay, they embalmed him, that's okay. Because if you say that he's only spiritually alive, then you have no problem. The whole question is not a question. They buried him, of course they buried him. They buried his physical body, but spiritually he's alive. But from the Talmud's answer, and from the way Rashi learns it, Rashi is saying clearly that he's physically alive. This that they buried him, is that's what it appeared. So that's what they did, because it appeared so. Okay. Let's take a look at this whole passage of the Gemara and see if we can gain insight into what's really happening over here by analyzing the entire story. So here Rav Nachman and Rav Yitzchak are sitting together by a meal. And Rav Nachman says to Rav Yitzchak, can you tell me some Torah? So Rav Yitzchak is, is holding a middle eating. So he knows that he can't talk now. Because you're not supposed to talk. He's been endangering him. It's, it's, and it's a law. The Torah says you're not allowed to do that. So he tells Rav Nachman, hey, Rav Yochanan said that you're not supposed to talk in the meal. So therefore, why are you... Why are you, so you shouldn't be asking me to say something now. And I'm not going to tell you something now because Rabbi Yochanan said, don't talk, but hold it. Isn't that a whole lot of talking? He, he, he's violating the very thing that he just told him you're not supposed to do. I mean, if he really doesn't want him to talk, he goes, shh. Right? Shh. Or even just show him. Right? What's this whole... What's this... He tells him you're not allowed to talk. But that itself you're not allowed to do. If you're not allowed to talk, then you're not allowed to talk. So, and he's explained, and more, more than that. What was he going to say to him? I mean, it's not like Rabbi Yitzvah didn't have what to say. He had something to say. You see, immediately when they finished eating, he does tell him something. He says, Rabbi Yochanan said that Yaakov didn't die. Now, that statement, Rav Yochanan said, Amar hachi, hachi Amar Reb Yochanan. Yaakov avinu lo meis, that's eight words. Okay, eight words. Now, how about what he told him during the meal? Hachi Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Ein Masichin Besuda. That's eight words. But then he goes on to give him a whole explanation. Why not? Shema Yagdim Kana Leveshet V'yavar Lidei Sakana. That's 14 words. 19 words, I think. Oh, whatever. 14, 19, I lost count. But whatever it is, by telling him this long thing, he's actually in the... He's saying more than if he would have just told him the law... Basically, Nudnik, you want me to say, you tell you something, I'll tell you halacha. And finished, and leave me alone. Instead, he's busy telling him this whole thing that you're not allowed to eat, you're not allowed to talk while you're eating, and giving him a whole explanation of why you're not allowed to do that, while he's eating, and putting himself in danger by saying that. So that needs to be understood. And the law, by the way, of not supposed to, you're not supposed to eat, you're not supposed to talk while you're eating, actually even applies to one word. We know that there's halacha that says when you're sitting by a meal, um, the Shulchan Aruch uh, is brought down that the, 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 everybody should make their, if you bring wine in the middle of the meal, you don't have one person say hagafen. Maybe one person should say a borah hagafen for everyone. Like you do with the hamotzi. One person on Shabbos, one person makes the hamotzi for the whole table. So we should maybe do that with the hagafen. If you bring, so the, the law is no, because you're afraid the other might be a middle eating, and if he's going to say the bracha, everybody's going to answer amen, it's only one word, and causing people to be... To, it's a danger. We're scared someone is going to choke because of that. So therefore, you don't talk in the middle of eating. Even one word. And here he's going off to a lengthy explanation. Okay? Now, a possible... So the Mepharshim, some of the Mepharshim on the Ayin Yaakov, which is the Mepharshim on this passage of the Talmud, um, they want to argue possibility and say that he wasn't trying to explain to him why he can't talk. Because that itself would be in violation of not talking. 
He basically was trying to tell him, be quiet. Because Reb Nachman was now also eating with him. So Reb Nachman had just done something you're not supposed to do. He was his teacher. Rav Yitzchak is the teacher of Rav Nachman, like you see in this whole dialogue of the Talmud, that Rav, Rav Nachman is always asking Rav Yitzchak, and Rav Yitzchak is answering him. So Rav Yitzchak is the teacher, and Rav Yitzchak is obliged to teach a student. And the halacha is that when someone is doing something wrong, you're supposed to stop them immediately. So here he wants to stop, and even, here's the thing, sometimes even at the cost of doing something that you're not supposed to do. In other words, you're sometimes allowed to do something you're not supposed to, even when it's inappropriate to talk. But when you have to stop someone from doing something wrong, you're allowed to talk. Because you're stopping them. For instance, there's a law, there's a law that one should not talk in the, if there's a public bathhouse and people are bathing. So because of modesty, people are not supposed to talk to each other. But, but if someone is doing something that is not allowed, so the halacha is you're allowed to stop them. From, you're allowed to tell them to st- because of why? Because La Frushemi is surah, to stop someone from doing something that is forbidden, you're allowed to do so. So it could be over here that Reb Nachman is telling, I'm sorry, Reb Yitzchak is telling Reb Nachman, Ein Masichin Besuda, to teach him that Allah to stop him from talking. That's why he couldn't tell him the other law, uh, the other story about Yaakov Avinu didn't die. That's a nice thing, but that has no halachic ramifications. There's no halachic ramifications to Yaakov. The only halachic ramification possible to Yaakov Inu not dying is whether his, his burial site, a Kohen, is allowed to go there or not. If Yaakov never died, then you're allowed to go to his, a Kohen is allowed to go to his burial site. But besides that, there is no really halachic ramification, especially for that, the two of them at that moment. But this was a halachic question. You're not allowed to talk, so that's why you have to tell. But there's a problem with that. The problem with that is, if that would be the reason why he said it to him, then he should have just told them the law. Why is he also giving him the reasoning? Okay, he tells him two things. It's very practically. He tells him, you're not allowed to talk in the middle of a meal. And then he continues giving him the whole reason. Why are you not allowed to talk in the middle of a meal? Because we're afraid you're going to cause the windpipe to open up, the food is going to go in. All that could wait till after the meal. You'll explain it later. First, just tell him, you're not allowed to talk in the middle of a meal. So that needs to be understood, why he told him this. Secondly, especially, why did he have to give him this lengthy explanation? In the middle of the meal. When that itself goes against the very halacha that he's teaching. Secondly, is there a connection between the teaching that he taught him in the end with that discussion that they had about talking in the middle of the meal? I mean, we can say it's just random. He asked him, please tell me something. Rabbi Yitzhak is thinking and he said, what can I teach him? And he recalled this teaching of Rabbi Yochanan that, ya- that Yaakov didn't die. But he couldn't tell it to him immediately because you're not allowed to talk in the middle of the meal. So he waited till the end and he told it to him. But there's no connection between Yaakov not dying and talking in the middle of a meal. It's just a random thing. It happened to be that it happened that when was this teaching taught at the same time when he, right, right after this discussion that happened by the meal. You can say so. But since the Torah is not really random ever, so it makes more sense to say that there really is a connection. That when he tells him this teaching that Yaakov didn't die, is connected to the discussion that they had before that. Now the next question. When, 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 Reb Nach, when Rabbi Yitzchak said that Yaakov didn't die, so Reb Nachman questions him. And if you remember the words Reb Nachman says, he says, Is it in vain that they eulogized him? 
They embalmed him and they buried him. Is it in vain? Did they do that all for nothing? And that's a strange way of asking the question. I think a much better question would be, Hey, how did they embalm him? How did they eulogize him? And for sure, how did they bury him? He's a living person. How do you bury a living person? He doesn't say, how did they do that? He says, did they do it in vain? Almost like, what a shame for the money they spent in doing this. He's not even dead. So why are they putting him in the ground? Now think about it. You know, especially a burial, a burial site costs a lot of money. Especially in Arisa Machpelo, can you imagine? It was very pricey. So they're saying, what a shame for the grave that they... Did they do this all for nothing? Hold it. We have a much bigger problem. How did they do it in the first place? Not, did they do it in vain? The words of the Talmud are accurate. What does he mean by... He should have asked something much far more applicable. Like, how did they do that? Not, why did they do, did, did they do that for nothing? Okay. And, and, then, and then again, he asked them a question. What's with the burial? What's with the eulogy? What's with the embalming? What does he answer him? He says, I have a Pasuk. The Pasuk proves that Yaakov didn't die because he's compared to his children. But hold it, you didn't answer the question. All you did was that you proved from a Torah that the Chumash says or the Navi says that Yaakov didn't die. But I still have a, a contradiction because they actually buried him. He didn't answer that question at all. So what is he answering him? He, right? So some of us want to say, the Marsha, that when he gives him the Pasuk, and he says, just like when he brings him that verse, and he says, Mikrani Dorish, I am expounding on a Pasuk. Where in the Pasuk it says, Yaakov, didn't, Yaakov is alive just like his children. It's not just a proof that Yaakov didn't die, but it's an explanation on this that Yaakov didn't die. And it's saying, he's basically saying, let me tell you what I mean by Yaakov not dying. So the Marsha says it means, just like his children are alive, so too Yaakov is alive spiritually, not physically. That's what he explained, that's what he means to say. Physically he died. That's why you don't have a question. Why did they bury him? Because he physically died. So they have to bury him. It's only that what? When I'm saying that he didn't die, I mean spiritually he didn't die. And that's that's how the Marsha explains it. The problem with that is, as we asked the question earlier, if that's the whole case that Yaakov is spiritually alive and not physically alive, then what's the novelty with Yaakov? Then that's true about Avram and Yitzchak and all the other tzaddikim. Everybody is spiritually alive. Secondly, Rashi clearly doesn't say that. Rashi says, because Rashi says, when he answered, I have a Pasuk, and Rashi explains, but hold it, Reb Nachman said, why did they bury him? Rashi says, they thought, Svurim Hayo, they thought that he died. Okay? So you see clearly that Rashi learns, that what? That when the, what we're deriving from the Pasuk is that Yaakov is physically alive. But that doesn't, ha- but if that's the case, doesn't that contradict that they buried him? So Rashi, so Rashi does answer. Rashi says that what? That it appeared to them, they buried him based on their evaluation of the situation, they buried him. Poor Yaakov, he got buried alive. He is alive. And they buried him. And he continues being alive. How can he live under the ground without, I don't know. But he is alive. But then, but hold it. 
If that's the answer, so according to Rashi, the answer is that they thought that he is alive. Even though, Rashi says they thought that he is alive, even though in reality he is not alive. Which is a good, which, which kind of is an answer, right? But the problem is, the Gemara doesn't say that. Meaning, the main, in the answer, all he says is, I have a Pasuk. doesn't say more than that. Okay, so to understand all of this, let's take a, a little bit of a step back, and we'll look at the context of where the Gemara tells this story. Again, the story was about Reb Nachman and Reb Yitzhak sitting together by a meal. But that story is within a broader context. The Gemara doesn't just suddenly out of nowhere just drop that story. The Talmud, in the, in, the, in the page before this, in the last page before this, the Gemara relates a few discussions, a couple of conversations that these two people had, Reb Nachman and Reb Yitzchak. In where Reb Nachman asks a question, Reb Yitzchak gives an answer, and every time Reb Yitzchak's answer is an answer given from his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Yitzchak is transmitting teachings from Rabbi Yochanan to Rabbi Nachman. And there are, over here, a few such stories. So what we're going to do now is by analyzing the general theme of all those discussions, maybe that's going to give some light on what's, on what's happening over here, an insight to understand this better. So we're not going to go through all the stories, but we're going to go through one of them, the first one, and see, see, what comes out from the passage, from this whole blot, from this entire page of Talmud, is Rabbi Yochanan is teaching an idea that, that you see it in a few of the conversations, not in every one, but a few, in a few of those conversations, that God relates to the Jewish people in a miraculous manner. That even though Hashem created the world in, with, to run based on the laws of nature, yet with the Jews, with the Jewish people, there's a special connection and therefore God does miracles for the Jewish people. And really, in truth, our existence is kind of miraculous. We're not ordinary people living a natural existence. The first thing, and I'll relate the first statement of the Talmud. The Gemara begins by telling like this. Um, Rav Nachman says to Rav Yitzchak, it says in a Pasuk that Hashem is going to bring the early rains, the first rains, Yoreh, which are the first rains. Hashem is going to bring that in the month of Nisan. Nisan is April time. April, right? Late March, April. Now the early rains don't come in April. The late rains, if anything, come in April. The rain season, especially in the land of Israel, and in Mo- is in the winter. And the winter season is from, whatever, November, December, October, late night. Cheshvan is when the rain comes. So that's what Ramachman says to Rabbi Yitzchak. I don't understand. How come it says the early rains are going to come in Nisan when the early rains come in Cheshvan? So Rabbi Yitzchak says to him, well, let me tell you what my teacher Rabbi Yochanan says. Rabbi Yochanan says that this happened one time in Jewish history, in the time of the prophet Yoel. Okay? In the days of Yoel Anavi, there was a terrible famine in the land. For seven years, there was a ravishing famine in the land. And to make matters worse, in addition to that, there were four years of a plague, of a horrific plague of locusts. So not only was there a drought, no water, nothing growing. Whatever, whatever anything was there was eaten by the locusts. So there really was not a morsel of food. And there was a danger of starvation for the Jewish people. The Navi told the Jewish people that rain is going to come. On the first day of Nisan, the first day of Nisan, which is already past the rain season, the first rains came. Came a rain downpour. 
the prophet told the people, go outside and sow the seeds. The people had given up that year, they didn't plant. Because there was nothing to, first, there was nothing to plant. Secondly, I mean, there was nothing, no rain. And they, they didn't expect anything to grow. He told them, if you have any, any wheat or grains, go out and plant them, go sow them. So the people said to him, are you crazy? If we're gonna, this is the last bit of food we have. If we have some wheat, we're going to make it into bread to feed our families for another week or so. You're telling us to plant it, that means that we're going to starve. And anyways, how in the world is it going to grow? It's, it's, it's now already, and it's after the season. It's not going to grow. He says, don't worry, just plant it. So um, two, miracle, two miracles happened. One, one was that the people found, suddenly stashed away. And it's interesting, this miracle happened all over Israel. People suddenly found stashes of wheat that the mice had kind of pulled off in the cracks and stored away in their own little storage places. And I know you're thinking, ooh, yeah, okay, but when you're very hungry, you can take that wheat. And they took that wheat, and they processed that, and they, that wheat they ate immediately. The wheat, the little bit of wheat that they had left, which they were going to use for, for to, 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 to eat, they planted it. On, in three days, they, three days they were planting, on the second of Nisan, the third of Nisan, and the fourth of Nisan, for three days. Then the rain started coming on the fifth of Nisan. These were the second, second rain pour. It came on the first day of Nisan, the fifth of Nisan. And guess what? By the time Pesach came along, the 16th day of Nisan, 11 days later, they were already cutting the barley because it was fully ripe. In other words, that which usually took six months to happen, now happened in 11 days. And that's Rabbi Yochanan's explanation of what it means the first rains are going to come, which is a clear indication that with the Jewish people, God tweaks nature, and He wants to do a miracle, and He gave us the rain at such enormous, not the rain, He gave us the rain at the different season, but the growth of the grain at such enormous speed. And so there are other passages in the Talmud, in this passage of Gemara, where Rabbi Yochanan's teachings, the content of Rabbi Yochanan's teaching is, that the Jewish people have a miraculous existence. Okay. Now, the Talmud continues with this story. You see, Reb Nachman wasn't an ignoramus. He wasn't a bore. He was a big sage. Reb Nachman knew the rule, don't talk in the middle of a meal. Okay? Every mother says to the kids, don't talk while you're eating. Right? So Reb Nachman also knew that you're not supposed to talk in the middle of the meal. Reb Nachman, however, asked his teacher, please say something of Torah, because Reb Nachman believed that what? Reb Nachman believed that that rule that you don't talk when you eat does not apply to speaking Torah. If you're speaking just whatever, um, any mundane, regular conversation, yes, you're not supposed to talk because you're putting yourself in danger. But over here, this was a Torah. This was a Torah, a Torah teaching he's asking for. And so what's so special? When you are teaching Torah... Since it's a mitzvah to talk Torah, and we know that the Torah saves a person. The Talmud tells us in Masech Saita, Torah megina umatzli. Torah protects and saves a person. So therefore, I don't have to be concerned. Similar to the concept which we all know of, we all heard, shliach mitzvah einan People that are doing a mitzvah, if you're an emissary, if you're an agent for doing a mitzvah, you don't get harmed. So being that even though naturally when a person is eating, there might be a da- talking while they're eating, there can be a danger of choking, but you don't have to fear that that's going to happen during when you're speaking Torah, because you're engaged in Torah, and Torah is holy, and it's going to protect the person. 
And therefore, a machmet, and especially since we know that it is a re- that aside for the mitzvah of learning Torah all the time, there is a special reason to talk Torah by the table. Because like this, we sanctify the table. There is a Mishnah in Pirkei Avas that discusses if people sit by a, by, a, by a table and you don't speak words of Torah, then the food that's on the table is considered um, like Zifchei Mesim. It's, it's, it's considered a table of idolatry, that is, sacrifices for the idols. You have to speak words of Torah by the table. It's just that you don't have to talk a middle of eating, but you have to talk by the table. So Ramachman thought, based on that, since Torah protects a person, there is no worry that chas v'shalom, someone will choke. So go ahead and learn Torah. This is what, that's why he said to Rabbi Yitzchak, can you tell me something? Rabbi Yitzchak tells Rabbi Nachman, you should know that no, ein masichin besuda. You're wrong. We don't talk in the meal. And what he wants to tell him is that even Torah we're not supposed to talk while we're eating. Even, even Torah. Why not? Rav Nachman is right. There is a rule that says that what? That someone doing a mitzvah will not be harmed. You're going to have God's protection. God runs the world after all, and therefore you'll have Hashem's protection. So Rabbi Yitzchak is telling Rav Nachman, no. He continues and gives the explanation. Remember we asked earlier, why does he go ahead and give him a whole explanation? Because this was, because this was exactly what he needed to teach him. He's telling him like this, since the reason you don't eat is because it causes, it, it, it makes a person... It's, it, um, it, it puts you in danger because you're... So, so, and, and so the, the rule is that in a particular dangerous situation, we do not say that you can go ahead and act recklessly doing a mitzvah. And in other words, true, mitzvah protects a person. That's in regular circumstances when there isn't a particular danger. When there isn't, when, when it, there isn't a common or a per, something that we can most likely to happen. For example, we use the idea of shlicha mitzvah in an ezaikin. We give people a dollar bill when they go on an airplane. Okay, everybody does that. We make someone a shlicha mitzvah. Why? Because going off, taking a flight is not dangerous. Thank God, you know, 99.9 of all flights, and maybe much more than that, are all safe. So a person wants extra, extra, you know, to feel comfort. Listen, that's you're taking you're taking a dollar for tzedakah, and you know you're shliach mitzvah, so that gives you this extra measure of insurance or protection. But to go into a war zone and endanger your life, that's a different story. We don't say shliach mitzvah einan ezaykin, and this like the sages use the term hecha deshchicha hazeka, where the hazek, where the danger is something that's very probable, then we do not say, go ahead and disregard everything and just go ahead and do the mitzvah. We say that uh, um, Hashem told Shmuel Anavi to go up anoint David HaMelech as a king. So Shmuel Anavi says to God, but if I come and I do that, Shaul will kill me. Because I'm going to be, in a, against, in a sense, rebelling against his kingship. By, by. So God says, don't worry. But you see, the very fact that he objected, even though he's going on Ashli, why doesn't Shmuel Hanavi know that he's doing a mitzvah? The answer is, when you're appointing someone as king in front of the other king, there is a very likelihood that he, the king is not going to like it, right? And he might, might do something, or definitely will do. He will react. So that's what Shmuel is saying. So you're not allowed to do something, even when it's a mitzvah, when... It is a clear danger. 
And that's what Rabbi Yitzchak was telling Rabbi Nachman over here. And that's why this explains again why you had to tell him the reason. Because again, they weren't discussing whether you can talk or whether you can't talk. That he also knew. He thought that he has a heter to talk because he's speaking Torah. So he says, by the way, it's halacha. The halacha is in Magan Avram in the laws in, in, cha- in chapter 170, Kuf Ayin in, in, in Arachayim. The Magan Avram says that even in Torah, we're not allowed to talk a middle eating. And but the very same Magan Avram says a minute later that a table that doesn't have any Torah is considered a food for the, for the idol. So the Mepharshim explained, the Arach HaShulchan, that it, that, so how do you reconcile both? Am I supposed to eat? Am I supposed to talk while I'm learning? Am I supposed to learn while I'm eating or not? So they, they explain, before the meal or after the meal you can talk. But not during the actual meal. There's a whole question, see, every, see in halacha everything is discussed. There is a whole question if between the courses you're allowed to talk Torah. But f- one thing is for sure, at the beginning of the meal, before the meal, before everybody begins to eat, you're allowed to. And afterwards you're allowed to, but not in the middle. Okay. So now, comes out from all of this, hear this. So it comes out a, a very, very important idea. That even though Rabbi Yochanan himself had taught us earlier that the Jewish people are a, have a whole different reality and that the Jewish people transcend nature. And we are on a different system. We are in a, on a system of miracles. We operate in a different, on a different plane, on a plane of miracles. Yet we're not supposed to use that in our performance of Torah mitzvahs. In our performance of Torah and mitzvahs, we have to work within the safety precautions of nature. We're not allowed to act right recklessly. But here is something very deep. Let's try to analyze that. Why is that so? If the Torah is really beyond nature, it's divine. If the mitzvahs are divine, if the Jew is divine, he has a spark of God, so what's the problem with disregarding nature and just doing what needs to get done? I mean, we're doing something very important. We're doing God's will. So what's the reason why we have to obey and respect nature in mitzvahs? And the Torah itself does not allow us to endanger our life doing a mitzvah. Why? So there's two possibilities of how to, how to see that, how to, how to understand that. One of them is just a simple one. And that is that God is the one who created nature. It's a, it's a godly system that Hashem created for this world. God respects the nature that He created. Not only that, the Ran, this is Rabbeinu Nisim, the Ran says in the Drushes of the Ran, in the eighth Drush, the Ran says a very interesting phrase. The Ran says, in Hashem's, because Hashem created nature and set it up to work in a certain system, it is Yakar Be'ene Hashem. It is precious in God's eyes, and God is very reluctant to change it, unless it's an emergency. He does not like to mess with nature. Therefore, we can say that true Torah is of utmost importance. It is very, very important to get the mitzvah done, or to study Torah, or whatever it is. Like we said earlier, it's very important to say Torah during a meal. But since, according to the laws of science, According to the laws of the, the, the medical laws, it is you're jeopardizing your health. You're doing something dangerous if you're talking while you're 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 eating, and therefore, as important it is to speak Torah right now during the meal, you have to stop and work and and respect the laws of this world. 
which means, according to that, that the laws of nature govern everything, govern our lives as long as we're physical. The laws of nature govern our physical life. Even in matters of Torah and mitzvahs, the laws of nature have dominion, so to speak, over the Torah, over the meaning Torah and mitzvahs must obey the law. Similar to the idea that we say, when you go to a certain land, you have to obey the laws of that land. When you go to Rome, act like the Romans. When you're in a certain place, when Torah comes down in this world, Torah must reckon with, the, with, with this world because, because the laws of nature that God has set up are important and God has made it important and therefore the Torah can't, can't mess with it. That's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it, and this is very important, and that is not that there are any rules and regulations that can dictate to the Jew or can dictate to the Torah what it could do or what it can't do. If Torah needs to do something, then nothing can stop it. The Torah has full dominion over creation and control over creation because the Torah is one with God and God has full sovereignty over the world and control over the world. If so, why do we have to work and restrain ourselves, not do a mitzvah or not study Torah at certain times because it's kind of meddling with the world? The answer is not because the world needs to be respected in that, because the, the physical world has power over the Torah, the laws of nature has power over the Torah, but quite the opposite. It is the objective of Torah. Torah itself, it is part of the, the, the objective and the interests of Torah to keep the world in its natural form and deal with the world as the world is natural so that the Torah can fix this world, refine it, and, and purify it. Which means it's not in the interest of the world that we shouldn't tweak it, we shouldn't break its rules. Maybe, maybe it is in the interest of the world, but it's also in the interest of the Torah. Meaning to say that what? When to- See, the Torah has to come and elevate this world. But the only way you can elevate this world is when you work with it not destroy it, not override it. When you're overriding something, you're not refining it. The only way you refine something is when you work with it. That's why we once had a whole long discussion, a very important idea, that every mitzvah that you do, you must do it in a natural form. Even if you're a super tzaddik and you can do miracles, you're not allowed to snap your fingers like this and go like this and have species, four species of the plants, the arba minim, and shake it. It's forbidden. There, even though you have an esrog, the answer is, it came to you miraculously. And that's not the way a mitzvah needs to be absorbed, observed. A mitzvah should be observed by toiling, working, earning the money, going through all the natural means, buying the lulav and the esrog, and then shaking it with your physical strength. Why? By doing that, you're taking all these physical forces of creation, refining them and making them godly. There's a beautiful story which I'm going to share. I might have shared it once by a share, but it, it, it just gives this idea. The, the Rishnir Zalman of Liadi, the Balatanya, was once presented by a chassid of his, one of his followers presented him with a snuff box. A silver snuff box, in which we had what we call tabik, this is snuff, and you'd, the Alter Rebbe didn't want to use it. And he said that I have one limb in my body that is not a lustful limb, and that's my nose. 
All the limbs of my body, of everybody's body, is always is looking for satisfaction, is looking to be satiated, is looking for pleasure. The nose enjoys a good smell, but it's not like, it's not like you walk around hungry, I must smell roses right now. It's not a baltaiva. So the Rebbe said, I have one limb that's not begging for attention. Am I going to stuff it with unnecessary attention? It's not even asking for it. I have enough to deal with the parts of my body that are calling out all day for attention. So he didn't want to use it. So what did he do? But he, he had a gift. So he broke off the top of the gift. And he used it, it was a silver snuffbox. He used the cover as a tefillin, as a mirror, where he can check if his tefillin is centered in the middle of it. Because tefillin have to be exactly in the center of your head. So he took it off and he would look, use it as a mirror to see if the tefillin is exactly in the middle. This story was related by the grand, to was related by one of the Hasidim to the grandson of the Balatanya, of the Alter Rebbe. And he related exactly as I told it. That what? That the Alter Rebbe took the top and he broke it off. That Tzemach Tzedek corrected him. And he said that's not what happened. He didn't break it off. He said there was a pin that was connecting the upper part of the snuffbox to the lower part. My, father, my grandfather removed the pin. And then he had a mirror. Because my grandfather never broke anything. And he meant something very deep. The way to deal with the world is not through breaking it, or overriding it, or suspending it. The, day, the way to deal with the world is to, to, to slowly, carefully direct everything in this world to operate in accordance to God's will. But to do that, you have to work with what is. You can't suspend what is. You can't just break it or override it. You've got to work with it. So Torah and is kind of like waltzes with the creation for thousands of years. It dances with the world together. And it fixes, it, it directs every aspect of the world together with it, not, not, by, not by... That's why, for that reason, the Torah itself does not want to be a bulldozer and come over here and say, well, you got to say Torah in the middle of the meal. doesn't make a difference if you're going to choke. You know what? You're doing a godly thing. Just rely on, the, on God's thing and, and, just, and just do the mitzvah and nothing is going to happen. The Torah could do that, essentially. But the Torah doesn't want to do that because then it's not working within the norm of nature. It wants to work within nature to fix nature. For that reason, and that's the reason why you must obey, you must respect the laws of nature even while doing Torah and mitzvahs, learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. It's not because the Torah is controlled by nature. It's a big difference. It's not because the Torah is controlled by nature. Torah is not controlled by nature. Torah is infinitely more powerful than the world. It doesn't take any limitations. It doesn't take any... It chooses. The Torah itself chooses to, to work within these certain laws, within these certain parameters, because, uh, because that's what it chooses to do. It's like a mother going to school with her little child, sitting down and following all the rules that are in the classroom. Sitting quietly by the... It's not because she's obliged by these rules. She chose for the day to be a, to be a, uh, a, a, a five-year-old in the class that has to follow the rules. So she's, she, she self-imposed those rules. That's the idea. The Torah self-imposes these regulations on itself so that it can fix and inspire and, and direct the world. That's the idea. 
So now we'll understand this is what Reb Nachman, this is what Reb Yitzchak says to Reb Nachman again. Reb Yitzchak just told Reb Nachman, hold it again. He just taught him a, a, a very fundamental principle in being a Jew. You realize what just happened? I just want you to understand something. When we just learned this little passage of Gemara, do you realize that this teaching was not a little teaching? Whether you can talk by the meal or when you can talk by the meal. This was a very fundamental guidance in regards to general observance. Do you disregard the world to do God's will? Or not? So Rabbi Yitzchak had just told Rabbi Nachman, no, you can't do something dangerous. When something is dangerous, you're not allowed to do that even when you're doing a mitzvah. But he doesn't want Reb Nachman to make a mistake, to think that the reason why you have to obey the laws of nature when you're doing a mitzvah is because something could control a Jew or something could control the Torah and the mitzvahs. He wants to explain to him that that's not the reason. But it's because the Torah itself wants to work. The Torah chooses to work with the world because so it wants, because that's what the Torah needs to do. It needs to elevate creation, it has to work with creation. That's why, what's the teaching he told him right after the meal? What was the immediate teaching? He tells him, I want to tell you something about the Jewish people. I want to tell you something about the Torah. Who is the man who, who's the quintessence Jew? Yaakov. He's the father. We all know that our neshamas are all part of Yaakov. Yaakov is the... And from the fathers, he is like the perfect one of the fathers. Because we know that he's called Bechir, the chosen one of the fathers. It's like Avram and Yitzchak where Avram was half-baked, Yitzchak was three-quarters, and Yaakov finally is the final product. Okay? He's the final, final perfect Jew. Until Moshiach. Okay? Yaakov is, is the perfect Jew. Yaakov is also the Torah. Because we know that Avram's thing was chesed. Yitzchak's thing was um, prayer. And what's Yaakov? Yaakov is Torah. Truth. Since Yaakov is the, is the most perfect Jew, and he says, guess what? Yaakov didn't die. Yaakov of Inuloi Mace didn't die. What does that mean that Yaakov doesn't die? That means that he's now three and a half thousand years later, maybe longer, close to four thousand years, that you have a living human being, Yaakov. Yaakov is still alive. Yaakov didn't die. Hold it, every human being died. What are you talking about? There's no such a thing as a human being that lives forever. Well, Yaakov lived forever. What does this teaching teach you? That a Jew... Yaakov, who is the perfect Jew. Yaakov, whose entire body is Torah. That's what Yaakov did. Yaakov never went out of the tents of Torah. He studied Torah all day. He, he is the personification of Torah. And therefore, what do we say about Yaakov? Yaakov lo he did not die. What is he clarifying? Let's hear. hear. What is this connected to the discussion they had before? Don't think that a Jew is under the rules of nature. Torah is not under the rules of nature. Yaakov didn't even die. Even though it's a fundamental principle in the world based on the laws of nature that everything that is composed from everything that is a physical object has to die. Everything, But yet, Yaakov didn't die. The laws of nature don't apply to him. That's a very important teaching. And that teaches you about what I told you before not to talk by the meal. I know it's very important to what? To say Torah... I want you to understand that it's not because, it's not because, let's go back, not because there, 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 is some, there is some true limitation on your Torah observance. Because the Torah wants to fix the world in, on its terms. Not because there really is a true limitation on the Torah. Comes Rabbi, Yitzch, Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman did not understand it that way. You see? 
Rabbi Nachman understood it differently. When Rabbi Yitzchak told him that you're not allowed to talk in the meal even words of Torah, how did he understand it? He understood it is that the Torah is limited by the, world, by the laws of nature. He understood it as a, real, as a true limitation. That in this world, the world, nature governs everything. If you're in this world, nature governs you. Not because the Torah wants to be governed, but because so is, so is the law. This world is... If you're living in this world, you have to work by nature. That's how Reb Nachman understood it. When Reb Yitzchak told him that it's not that case, and he said, you should know Jews, they're not at all within nature. Torah mitzvahs, you see, Yaakov didn't die. He was taken aback by that. So Reb Nachman says to Reb Yitzchak, I don't understand. Did they bury him in vain? Did they eulogize him in vain? Did they embalm him in vain? He doesn't ask. Now here, very, this is a very fine, fine thing. He doesn't ask him the question, how did they bury him? How did they... He doesn't say that. Because they could have buried him. Maybe they, like Rashi says, maybe they thought he died. It's not a question of why. That wasn't his question. He's asking a much deeper question. He's saying like this. He says, why is he saying in vain? Because what he's saying is like this. His question is not on the facts. Let me go again. His question is not because he found some ancient scroll that describes the story that Yaakov died and they buried him. That wouldn't bother him at all. What was bothering Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak is, who told us that they buried him? Where does it say that Yaakov was buried? Where does it say that they embalmed him? Where does it say that they eulogized him? It says so in the Torah. The Torah describes Yaakov's death. The Torah describes that Yaakov was buried. And not only that, who was the one who commanded they should bury him? Initially Yaakov, and then Yosef. And it's a mitzvah. Let me ask you, was it a mitzvah to bury Yaakov? It's a mitzvah to bury any dead person. Was it a mitzvah to bury him? It was a mitzvah to bury him. And the Torah describes it as a mitzvah. And the Torah describes all these events. Now, according to this, if according to the Torah, the Torah is telling us that Yaakov really didn't die, Yaakov is alive and he didn't die, comes out that the Torah is telling us all these things and that what they did to Yaakov and these stories that the Torah is telling us about Yaakov aren't true. See, everything the Torah tells you has to be true. Today's days, there's, I'll give an example. Today's days, there are many hypotheses or whatever. People are... Uh, that, that, that people think and trying to prove that the universe is a myth. It's just imagination. It's not real. Does the universe, I see it always on these news things, does the universe really exist? You know, Hasidists, the Hasidic masters have the same question. The Hasidic masters are so, they're so imbued with the reality of God, with the truth of Hashem, that they ask the question, maybe the universe is imagination. Maybe only Hashem is, and there's nothing but God. And you know what their answer is? That there must be a world? Because it says in Chumash, In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The Torah can't be telling a lie. So here is the question. Hear the question? If the Torah says that they buried him, if the Torah says that they... So the, the, his question is, did they do that in vain? Meaning, is there no truth to that? That's his question. Not how did they do that. They could have done it because that's what they saw. But the Torah is talking about it. If the Torah is talking about it, it means the Torah is telling you something. If, this, the, if the Torah knows that Yaakov is really alive, therefore there is no... V- a live person you don't bury. If they, who do you bury? You bury someone who died. But if the real, but his, his death is not real, according to the Torah, then what are they doing? That's his question. How can you tell me that Yaakov is alive? 
I believe you that he's, that's not a problem, he says. But how can you tell me it seems like the Torah gives recognition to Yaakov dying? Because the Torah relates the story. So comes Rabbi Yitzchak, and Rabbi Yitzchak answers him. And Rabbi Yitzchak tells him, it's a very important answer. Rabbi Yitzchak says to him, Mikra Anidoresh, I am, I am expounding on a Pasuk. Meaning this, that, see, what he's saying, I, I have a verse, is not like I said earlier. It's not that he's telling him, don't confuse me with the facts. I don't care what science says. I'm telling you I have a verse. And you can go, as you say in Yiddish, clap the cup and vant. You can go knock your head in the wall as much as you want. I have a verse. The verse says that Yaakov is alive, so don't tell me. That's not what he's saying to him. He's actually explaining to him. What is he explaining to him? He's saying to him like this. I want you to understand when I said that Yaakov is alive, physically. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is like this. Of course, I don't mean when Yaakov is alive physically that he is alive in a sense that scientifically a scientist can say this person is alive. That medically, that medically he's alive. No. To the eyes of the Egyptians, to the eyes of everybody that was around at that time, Yaakov died. And maybe they took a a brain scan, and they saw there's no brain activity. Maybe they measured his pulse, and there was no pulse. And in the end, what did they do? Maybe the doctor signed a death, a death certificate, and that Yaakov was not alive, finished. What, what do I, but then what are we saying that Yaakov is alive? What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is that mikra anidoresh, what does he mean? That in the world, in the truth of Torah, and I, 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 this is a little bit of a fine idea, and I, please follow me, okay? It's a little bit of a, a, it's a, it's a very subtle idea. Which means, in the truth of Torah, Yaakov didn't die. Not just the soul, not the confused, not the soul didn't die, his body didn't die. That means that there's two realities. Hear this well. There are two realities. There is a visible reality, that our eyes can behold and see. That visible reality is what our eyes will see and what the medical experts, scientists will see. That's one reality. Then there's a whole different reality and that's the way Torah sees the world and Torah defines where it's a much deeper inner, inner, inner reality. In the inner reality of Torah, in the world of Mikra, in the, in the world where the Torah is looking at the world, not only that, but not even on the level of pshat. He, hear what he says. Mikra ani doresh. That means in Torah itself there's various levels. So maybe even on the lowest level of Torah Yaakov died. In the level of pshat of Torah. But in the level of drash, which means even a higher, deeper, inner more state of existence, Yaakov's physical body is alive. That means if you want to know truth of truths, he is alive. Everybody else, see, when someone dies, they're dying in all levels. I mean, their neshama continues. But, but the truth is, they died. They died. Yaakov's death is an external thing that is happening to the eyes of anybody that's looking at it. But not in the truth, the inner reality of realities, in the truth of Torah, Yaakov didn't die. Physically didn't die, not spiritually. Physically his body, is, he's alive. Was there any signs of it? Any visible signs to the outside? No. Not at all. 
Now, let's give an example for something like that. I mean, we, we have that in the way we perceive things. See, our perception, our physical human perception, is a very little, a, a, a limited perception. We don't see things as they truly, truly are. In colors, for instance, we see a very limited range of colors. Animals have a much broader vision than we. Or even, let's say, if you go back uh, 200 years ago, our perception of of, of, of the way we actually saw something, phys- physicality, even today we still see it that way, but when we, when we looked at matter, matter is matter. Now that we were able to invent better sci- instruments to be able to uh, research things and look at things, so we're able to see that matter is really energy. And so there's, there's more than what we're looking at. There is, there, is a, there is energy over there. But even with the most advanced scientific technology, we still have a limit of what we're seeing, and there is deeper truth that, that we're not seeing what is, we're seeing what we're perceiving is, not what truly, truly is. Or like the, the theory, um, I don't know the, the fellow's name, the famous uh, scientific theory about the idea that when we observe something, we're actually limiting it to our observance. It's not the truth of what it really, really is. So that's the difference. Torah is looking at it from its deepest truth because Torah is the manual for creation. So Torah sees the creation at its core, core root. We're seeing the creation from our, from our physical vantage or you might say disadvantage point. And that's what he means, mikranido, and therefore two things come out. And this is what he's trying, trying to tell him, something very deep. He's telling him like this. Both things can be true. Yaakov doesn't die and he continues to live on physically. And at the same time, the Torah tells you about his burial. And the Torah tells you about... And Yosef commands him to bury, to bury their father. And they do. And they do the mitzvah. They're doing the mitzvah of burying the dead when they're burying Yaakov. Why? Because as we said earlier, Torah, reckon, Torah reckons with the world. Torah reckons with the way we see things. So based on the laws of Torah, as in as much as Torah is talking to us in our physical realm, and our reality, Torah tells us to say Kaddish. They probably said Kaddish after Yaakov because they were, I don't know if they had Kaddish then, but hypothetically, to conduct themselves, they probably sat Shiva like you sit after someone passes away. With all the laws, because in as much as practical reality, laws of seeing things in the practical sense, Yaakov died. And that's true. Because as we said earlier, Torah truthfully, truthfully, looks at creation and deals with nature as nature is. But that doesn't mean that there isn't, that does not mean that there isn't the higher, more inner truth, which is, in this case, Yaakov is alive. 1,000% alive. Physically alive. How can there be two opposite truths at the same time? I don't know, multi-universes, parallel universes, parallel realities, I don't know. But both things are MS, both things are true. At the same time he's alive, and at the same time, it's a very, very important idea. Now, what does this say to all of us? Just to conclude. As we bring this down to, the sages compare Yaakov to his children. The page is, Yaakov is compared to his children. Just like Yaakov is alive, his children are alive. Okay? So what is, what, is this, what is this saying? See, we the Jewish people too find ourselves in a very challenging reality. We the Jewish people find ourselves in an extremely challenging reality. Because we're living in a world where we are the minority. Right? We are the minority. 
And not only are we with the minority, but we are the despised, hated minority. In the words of the sages, we are one little lamb among 70 wolves that are waiting every moment to pounce on the little lamb and destroy it. We don't have to look too far back in our history. We can just look to what's going on just now and see how little friends we truly have, how few friends we have, and how there is so much animosity against the little tiny Israel. In addition to that, the Jewish people throughout our history, we were scattered amongst the nations that besides for the physical threat, think about the spiritual threat of a nation that is going to be scattered everywhere. And what are the chances? What are the chances for a nation like this to survive, to remain intact, physically intact, but even more so the tradition of the Jewish people, our Jewishness should remain. It doesn't have... So based on all social science, science of, if you would apply any rules of any civilization, of any rules of perseverance or preservation, if you can say, we ought not to have been here a very long time ago. Our existence is just like Yaakov. Yaakov Avinu doesn't die. We the Jewish people don't die. And even if you're going to have every single prediction, and even if you're going to have every single prognosis of like assimilation, there are people who make all these charts about assimilation, how by the year so and so, there won't be any Jews left because of assimilation. These are all very nice charts. And it doesn't mean that it shouldn't, sometimes when we see some of those charts, it shouldn't alarm us to action. Because as we said before, we must reckon with the rules of nature when it comes to our behavior in the world. We can't dismiss it and just run around and say we're a miraculous people and who cares, I can run around uh, without a coat running to do a mitzvah in the freezing cold weather and I'm not going to get sick because I'm doing... God does not want us to do that. The Torah doesn't want us to do that because the Torah wants to work within the world. So we're obligated to consider all these things but at the same time, we realize that we operate on two realms. Two realms. In essence, at our core... At our core, we're all a miracle. We're all we're constantly a miracle. The Jewish people are a whole as in a miracle and every single Jew individually is an absolute miracle, utterly transcending all the laws of nature. But at the same time, we're obligated to kind of work within it. And that's interesting. These are the two things you see that happen in the meal. You see, during the meal, what does he tell him? Shh, don't talk, you're going to choke. Don't talk. After the meal is over, what does he tell him? Eh, don't take that so seriously. This that I told you not to talk is not because you'll choke. You're, you're speaking to you. It's only that when Yaakov Avinu doesn't die. Come on, you don't have any of these, these, these scientific rules and regulations. Don't apply. You're busy with something godly. You should know that the Torah wants you to respect these rules because the Torah wants to work within the world. So you see there's two perspectives. There's the perspective during the meal and there is the perspective after the meal, which allegorically means something bigger. What it really means is, there's two perspectives to the Jewish people. During the time that we're engaged with the world for thousands of years, during the meal, what does meal mean? Meal is physical. During the time that we are engaged in fixing, the, engaged in, 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 in eating, eating meaning in, involved with the worldliness of this world, during that time, um, we don't see so much the transcendental, miraculous nature of the Jewish people. It appears that we are human beings, that we, it appears that we are human beings the same like everyone else, governed, governed by the same laws of everyone. But right before Mashiach comes, 
right now, as we completed the meal, as we complete the meal, and we're kind of disengaging already from activity within the world because it's time to go back to Yerushalayim to build the base Amigdash and live in everlasting, in everlasting godly light. Now, particularly now, is when the miracles of the Jewish people is going to start being visible. Here is where we're going to, we're going to see that we, the Jewish people, are not touchable. In other words, even though today's days there might be a threat from Iran and there might be a threat from here, we need to know absolutely that these things have no power whatsoever on us. Now, after the meal is over, is when we realize that Yaakov Avinu Loimes, that Yaakov didn't die. And in a sense, no Jew ever died in truth. Because that, that durability and that absoluteness of Yaakov, really, we inherit it from Yaakov. Every Jew inherits it from Yaakov. In the sense that what? The sages tell us, Kol Yisrael yeshlam chelek Every Jew is going to have a portion of the world to come. World to come over here means the resurrection. The reason why we're all going to be resurrected physically is because physically we're truthfully, again, in the truth of truths, in a more hidden way than by Yaakov. By Yaakov... He, he physically didn't die. We, there is an aspect of dying. But it's not a true death. Because the mere fact that the body will be back here for round two is a sign that it never really died. Because we are not, this is so important to understand this, to live by this and to recognize how fortunate we are, how powerful we are, and how we the Jewish people will triumph over all challenges, over all difficulties, because... Yaakov Avinu Loimes, Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people are both as collectively and individually absolutely alive. And there's not any possibility of any aspect of, of, of mace, of death. And from this, we assume we'll mer- merit to even see that all those who have already passed on are going to be right back as if they never died. Because that whole Misa element, the whole aspect of death does not was never true to begin with in as much as it applied to the Jewish people. May we merit to see that now.